This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. It is the best of the business breakfast on Friday, the 6th of January. Cracking show lined up for you today. Kicking off with our discussion about the four-day work week. That's because one restaurant chain based in Dubai, LPM, Posh Restaurant, DIFC, Hong Kong, Miami, London, that kind of thing. They've gone to a four-day week for their kitchen staff and also for their waiters and waitresses. Can it work? We've had an Instagram poll going, and we've got lots of opinions on this one. So we're going to dive straight into that to begin with. Then, a little bit later on, we're going to hear from the man himself, Nicholas Brzezinski, who's the Chief Operations Director for LPM Restaurants around the world, explaining how it all works. In between all that, we've got another Nicola, Nick Mayer, partner with PwC. He's a tourism expert talking about the new arrival numbers in Dubai. 23.7 million people arrived in Dubai last year. And also talking energy, Amina Baka is the Deputy Bureau Chief, also Chief OPEC Correspondent for Energy Intelligence Group. Oil has fallen sharply this year, as has gas in Europe. What's the story? All that to come. But first up, the four-day work week. Working class zero is something to be And that is because one small upmarket restaurant chain in Dubai and the UAE has cut its working week from five days to four days. It is LPM. They've got a posh restaurant in DIFC and one in Abu Dhabi as well, as well as several restaurants around the world. We've got an Instagram poll going today asking the question, what do you make of the four-day work week? Is it just a passing fad or is it the future of the work? Overwhelmingly... On our Instagram poll, people say it is the future of work. 81% say so. You've been getting the inside story, Brandy, haven't you? Yeah, I have. The reason we're focusing so much on LPM, by the way, because there are a lot of companies that have picked up different working practices over COVID, um, is because they're a restaurant. And the hospitality industry, I mean, if you've read any of Anthony Bourdain books, if you've watched any of the kind of the can you make it in a kitchen reality shows with with people like Gordon Ramsay, you'll know it's a, an industry um, where the norm is long, hard, antisocial hours. Uh, Nicholas Budzinski is the global operations director at LPM. He has come into the show this morning. We're going to hear the full interview in less than an hour. And told us that that very perception is kind of the reason that they need to change, particularly if they are going to attract the younger generation. This is Nicholas explaining why they've done what they've done. As a company, we've uh, always been looking uh, to our staff as a priority. We believe in the philosophy of happy staff, happy guests, and happy guests, happy business. Uh, So we just uh, looked into what can we do to continue to innovate. And we thought, why not? Well, the reason why not is that it it could lead to an increase in your cost base for your staff. If staff are working fewer days, do you have to hire more staff? That that would be a why not. It doesn't matter what business you're in. That's that's not a good thing. Yeah, and we will hear Nicholas explaining how they have made it work, juggled shifts, etc., to make sure um, that everyone gets paid the the same. And as Richard says, they don't end up with a shortfall. Um, but Nicholas went on to explain why they were doing it, given that it wasn't the norm for the hospitality industry. This is what he had to say to us. 
Yeah, but I think the COVID made us uh, rethink how to do things, uh, look forward. And we as a brand uh, always looked into uh, challenging the status quo. And we had this opportunity and we studied it carefully. Um, we tried it out in Abu Dhabi uh, over the summer for a couple of months. Uh, we studied the numbers. Uh, we got feedback from the staff and uh, all was very positive. So we thought, uh, let's roll it out to Dubai uh, after the reopening period, uh, after the renovation we had uh, for four months over the summer. And we wanted to start the year with great news for all our team members uh, in the UAE. So full interview uh, about LPM very shortly. It's interesting, though, it comes at a time when we're hearing globally of finance firms and the rest of them trying to get people back into the office. And I say trying. Apparently memos are are going out um, to say you need to to come back in. And the language that the Wall Street Journal was using on this was really interesting. They were saying, you know, getting people to try and come back in for maybe two days. And they said, uh, you know, sort of or even or for as much as five days a week. And I just thought the fact that that's now extraordinary. <laughs> Can you imagine us getting that memo when we were working in magazine companies here 20 yeah. years ago? Would you please, if you awfully don't mind, coming in five days a week? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that it's not just um, the, the norm, I think, is still a bit of a sea change. Loads of messages coming in on this. Thanks very much indeed. Ajaz, who also works in the hospitality industry, uh, he said this is for service and operations teams, not the management. Uh, he says, and he runs a business in DIFC as well, 48-hour week, so it can be done in as many days as necessary. And and that's what Nicholas explained. They're still going to work 48 hours. It's just going to be in four days rather than three. So they'll do, I think, was it two, th- three days a week, they'll do a split shift. And then one day a week, they'll do just one shift. And, and you get to your 48 hours. So it's not that they're reducing hours necessarily. It's just giving people that three-day break. We've had someone write in from a different industry, which is fascinating. No name on this, but writes in saying the following my company does the same we're an oil and gas company in Sharjah I don't think it works really the first four days of the week end up being very very long in my opinion work from home is the way forward with a hybrid model and flexibility on work location so at the moment we're forced into the office every single day but he doesn't think that's necessary four day weeks with no hours work changed and a fixed location just tell employees that you don't trust them, which reduces happiness and productivity. And of course, the obvious point to make there is that if some of your work is office-based, work from home is fine. You cannot be working in the kitchens or serving at a restaurant like LPM and working from home. I mean, <laughs> You're not grilling lamb drops in your own kitchen, exactly. are you? Exactly. That, 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 an obvious but important point. It's interesting. I just got a message from a friend saying that she used to do a four-day week in radio in London listening to us from New Zealand. Morning, Rachel. And it reminded me, and when the person who's messaged in to say, okay, yes, you've got the the shorter week, but, you know, if the hours are more intense, you're knackered. Um, I've done that myself, funny enough, working in, in radio in New Zealand, working around the clock in production shifts where for a week you would work sort of the daytime shift and then you'd work the overnight shift and then you'd work the morning shift. And then you'd get a full week off. The full nine days, two weekends in the week in the middle. And I can remember looking at the schedule and thinking, oh, this is brilliant. I'm going to go to Fiji and Western Samoa. I've got, you know, effectively a nine-week holiday every three months or so, two months or so. Um, This is going to be amazing. Um, You didn't. You spent that time recovering, trying to get your body (laughs) into into some kind of 
normal rhythm and just getting over the shifts that you'd worked earlier. I didn't go anywhere. Keep your messages coming. The Instagram poll is still live on our stories at Dubai A138FM. Other things we're looking at this morning is the situation in China and the COVID outbreak there. Lead story on CNBC this morning, China's new COVID surge is crippling the world's most important factories and its biggest ports. We asked Ed Bell very simply, how concerned should we be and what will be the economic ripple effects? The near-term data coming out of China is probably going to get worse before it gets better as the country really grapples with the rapid spread of COVID-19 since restrictions were lifted on the virus back in uh, December. This is going to play out into broader economic and financial market sentiment. I think when you look across any kind of risk asset, particularly anything that is highly geared towards trade with China, if you look at commodities, you look at uh, the currencies like the Australian dollar, all of them have been a little bit volatile and softening in the face of the negative numbers coming out of the country. So we're probably going to not have a very uh, satisfying first quarter in terms of the Chinese numbers that are coming out this year. That being said, once the virus sort of embeds into the economy and you get a bit more resistance to it and there's perhaps a better rollout of vaccines or more resistance, the economy should be set up for some decent growth later in the year. We would expect that the government would be willing to jump in and help to keep the economy on a good footing in the second half of the year. Ed Bell, Emirates NBD. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. We are looking at some new official numbers that have come out about how many people made it into Dubai last year. Um, We had around 23.5 million passengers um, coming in overall. That's 89% more than the year before. Very pleased to be joined in the studio by Nick Mayer, who is a partner in the global industry. Lead Tourism in PwC Middle East. Thank you very much for joining us. Good morning. It's nice to be here and a happy new year. So let's, Nick, put these numbers in context. We've got a near 90% increase in passenger arrivals for 2021. What do we mean by passenger arrivals first off? Sure. So those are, if you will, people that fly to Dubai, of course, and that leave the airport rather than moving on to Sri Lanka or Australia or wherever else they might be going. Um, They come for different reasons. So not all of them might necessarily be classical tourists. Some of them may be business visitors. Some of them may be friends and family. But they're basically people that are coming to Dubai with the intention of spending X days in Dubai for whatever purpose it is. And these are international visitors. These aren't commuters driving into Dubai from Sharjah. That would not be the case, no. Although it may very well be that some of them are actually returning into Dubai and are residents here. So that could be the case, of course. Okay. But we are generally talking um, people flying in from... Other countries. Yes. Or coming by boat, actually included. Absolutely, in which was really hot last year and which is going to be even hotter next year. I'm presuming we mean cruise ships by Mainly, that. mainly, yes. So Dubai last year, of course, really upped the game in, in, in its offering as a cruise ship destination, also as one of the home ports, which basically means an area where people fly to to start or end their trip rather than just spending a day there. So that, of course, brings a lot of people in that fly here spend a couple of days here and then head out to wherever their cruise liner will take them. Yeah, and we've got nearly a um, quarter of a million people, actually, on uh, coming in on boats. It's a 90% increase in passenger arrivals on 2021. What are you making of that? Well, look, I mean, it, it, it was a double whammy. First of all, of course, the year before, due to COVID, it was still quite low. Um, and at the same time, however, um, last year was 
an absolute banner year for Dubai, COVID or non-COVID. So on one hand, we started the year with uh, Expo still going on for three months. Towards the end of the year, we had the World Cup, which gave us near to a million visitors as well that stayed here and then flew into Qatar for individual games. And in between, we basically had the resurgence of tourism. We call it revenge tourism of people saying, I've been unable to travel wherever it is that I live. And now I'm going. And Dubai often was a choice of people that said, and one place I'm going to go to is Dubai. So it was a perfect storm in a perfect way. And that's why it got us there. And quite frankly, it's probably going to continue in a very similar way this year, 2023. I tried to have a little look at backwards and I couldn't find a direct comparison for 2019. It is possible I didn't just Google hard enough, it must be said. Uh, but I did find foreign overnight visitors, which came in at about 16.7 mm-hmm. million. What's your gut sense on where we are compared to pre-pandemic? So we are almost at par, I would say. And I also don't have the very exact number, but I see numbers that compare to this one. You have to remember that despite um, uh, Expo, the first quarter was still a difficult quarter for global tourism, right? There were lots of uh, destinations that, quite frankly, just didn't let their people leave or said, if you're going to leave, we're not sure we're going to let you back in. So... Um, despite that, especially towards the back end of the year, it, it, it came up almost to the same level. Now, looking at 2023, that, that's what I would expect that we're going to surpass 2019 numbers. Let's look, though, at 2023. I mean, at the moment, we are seeing this surge in pent-up travel demand. Mm-hmm. People who haven't I've been off to see grandma, friends, family, had a holiday in a long time. What happens when that initial demand subsides? Sure. So one of the things that are so cool about the way that um, Dubai has basically, if you will, built its tourism industry is that it's not dependent on any one given segment. It is very multi-layered, right? You have your classical, I would say, fun and beach, uh, sun, fun and beach visitors. You have the people that come in for business. You have the visiting friends of family. You have the conference business. You have the cruise liners now. And if you look at that, yes, some of the initial, we call it visiting friends and relatives segment, that may come slightly down. At the same time, there's new segments that are going to come back up. I mean, China has only just allowed its citizens to uh, travel again. We are starting to see first early signs of them arriving here. So I would expect that whatever potential reduction in demand from this revenge tourism we saw last year from last year will be overcompensated by, for example, Chinese visitors as well as other destinations that opened up late. How, though, does a potential global slowdown factor into that? The IMF's warning that a third of the world's economies could enter recession this year. What does that mean for us? Well, look, first of all, it's always good if everybody is doing good. So this is not the kind of industry where you say, great, Europe is doing bad, so I'm doing well. Nonetheless, if you're looking at what that means for us right now here in Dubai is we are, I think, now perceived globally as one of the most stable, strongest growing and most attractive business and lifestyle destinations, which means that a lot of people that want to temporarily or sometimes even permanently get out of these more tense economies are choosing Dubai as a destination. And a lot of the people that also move here, we have to remember, right, we have a substantial migration into Dubai for permanent or semi-permanent reasons. They generate visits as well. Because if you are a CEO that says, I'm going to move from some European country to Dubai, with him come hundreds, if not thousands, of visits of his business associates, his lawyers, his employees that come here as well to come in there. So that's going to increase and strengthen it very strongly as well. So... Right now, I think we have, in again, in the, in, in the best possible way, a perfect storm. We're stable, we're growing. The oil prices, of course, support uh, the economy. 
Um, and quite frankly, there's still quite a few strong markets that are going to increase and bring us more visitors. Uh, 30 seconds left with you, Nicholas, very quickly. What do you expect to see happen to air ticket prices this year? Uh, it's a tricky one because, of course, the oil price plays into there, but also the availability of the fleets. But in general, I would say you see um, the uh, fleet coming fully on board. I think I just read that Emirates, Emirates is now putting in their final A380s back into service. Yay for that. And with that, of course, we should see a little bit more capacity, which may be overcompensated by uh, the oil price. So I would expect, if I had to take a guess, it's going to stay about the same. Nick Mayer, partner at... PwC Middle East, uh, global industry leader, and he's in the tourism segment of the company. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Yeah, Amina Backer from Energy Intelligence with us in the studio. Morning, Amina. Good morning, Richard. Thanks for being with us. Should we start with energy prices, in particular the gas price? Because this is the headline in the New York Times this morning. Natural gas prices in Europe fall to pre-invasion levels. They went through the roof during April and then during the the late summer as well, up to as much as 340 euros per megawatt hour. But now we're down to just 76 euros per megawatt hour. Is the energy crisis over? I don't think so, uh, Richard. There's still a lot of uncertainties, but we're certainly expecting at Energy Intelligence that um, demand for uh, for energy normalizes this year. Uh, we're seeing uh, a lot of uh, activity, perhaps pick up in uh, in Asia. Um, so we are expecting during the second half of the year for uh, demand to rebound in terms of these prices that we're seeing uh, in uh, in gas. Um, I was in Europe this winter. It doesn't seem like they have a massive uh, shortage. There is enough inventory there to get through this winter. The question is that uh, what will Europe do for the remaining part of the year as tensions with Russia continue? So that geopolitical factor is still something that we're watching very closely uh, and will impact the energy scene in uh, in Europe. Uh, also factor in that Europe this year, we're expecting the lowest growth demand uh, given the uh, risk of having a recession uh, globally. So Europe is expected to grow about um, 0.86%, 0.9% compared to other parts of the world. So they're going to have lower growth uh, to deal with. What about oil prices? Big issue for us here in the Middle East, of course. You've got a headline on Bloomberg today, Saudi Aramco cutting its oil delivery prices for February to its clients in both Asia and Europe. Before Christmas, we were knocking on the door of 90 bucks a barrel today, Brandy. Where are we? You just gave us the price. It's below we're 80 bucks. Just under 80, 79.64. For Brent crude. What do you make of Aramco cutting its prices? Yeah, so the price today is around $80. Whenever they cut prices, the, the general inclination we have, or my thinking, is that they want to um, steer demand up. So they want to encourage demand, especially in, in markets uh, in Asia, where um, you have a lot of competing oil, too, coming from, from Russia. Russia's exporting a lot of oil into India and China, and that's competing with Middle Eastern barrels. So um, the cut will, one, encourage demand, make the oil more competitive uh, for, uh, for countries in the Gulf. And in this case, we're talking about Saudi. How are you reading the China situation? Because there's a several schools of thought, but two in particular. One is China coming out of lockdown will increase the economy in China, world's second biggest economy, and that will increase demand for fuel. 
aviation as more Chinese people travel, factories open up. The counter view is that China opening up will lead to a massive COVID outbreak. People won't be able to go to work. China, uh, what was the... The, the headline on CNBC this morning, factories and ports will be crippled by the COVID outbreak and demand for energy in China will fall. How do you balance those two? Yeah, I saw both scenarios and um, I hope and I we're, we're hoping energy intelligence too and our, our estimates are based on the first one, on the positive outlook that yes, it will open and demand will pick up and you, we will see oil demand normalize over, I mean, it's been abnormal for the past couple of years. 2023 might be the year where things finally uh, take a normal uh, trend. And uh, in terms of the the, the variant, uh, it appears to be weaker. It's still early days to say, uh, but it seems like the vaccines that we've taken at least uh, here in the UAE and other parts of Europe uh are working against uh, the this new variant. But uh, of course, anything could happen. And yeah, there's a possibility that it goes the other way around. As you said, we go into uh, to, to lockdowns and a slowdown of, of demand again. So but we'll but see. you've seen this uptick in, in Chinese or, or the, the, the nascent uptick in Chinese tourism. You were in Milan until a couple of days ago. And of course, famously, it was one of our business headlines a few days ago, flight to Milan, 50% of Chinese passengers landing, testing positive. So, so you were there. What, what was the chatter in Milan at the time? Oh, they were really scared. I mean, we were there a couple of weeks uh, just through Christmas. And yes, there were a number of flights that came in and 50% of the passengers had COVID. So uh, there was a lot of concern. And I believe right now that Europe has introduced this new um, travel restriction that all passengers coming from China must test uh, for, uh, for COVID. So... Yeah, that reintroduction kind of puts us uh, a little bit, we're taking a step back, but it's a, it's a precaution that's, uh, that's needed. Amina, let's talk about some of the more long-term trends that are going to be playing out in 2023. Clearly, going green is going to be one of them. Headline over the past 24 hours that I know you guys have been covering, Adnoc unveiling $15 billion with a B to decarbonisation. What do you make of this? Is this just greenwashing? Is this just a, a PR stunt or is there some substance to this? No, I think there's a lot of substance to this. And this comes in context of the UAE's overall goal, goal to reach net zero by 2050. We have COP that's being hosted by the UAE this year. So it's very important for the UAE and especially ADNOC, the national oil company, to uh, to actually show that they are taking steps to reduce their carbon footprint. This 15 billion earmarked for landmark uh, decarbonization projects by 2030 includes projects uh, such as carbon capture, electrification, CO2 absorption technology. Um, And we've already seen ADNOC taking steps. For example, all of their operations right now are, are powered by nuclear energy. Um, and this is something that, you know, we don't see with other national oil companies. So these are real steps being taken. These are real projects and we are going to see real results. What about green hydrogen? Hype or reality in 2023? Well, 2023, it's still a little bit too early. And with hydrogen, uh, blue or green or any color, you know, it comes in many colors of the rainbow. <laughs> it all depends on the demand and it depends on policy in countries or in, in continents like 
Asia or or Europe and how fast they're willing to uh, change policies in order to um, to to increase their demand. And we're going to see more production coming out of this region. There have been pilot exports of uh, of blue hydrogen uh, from the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Um, green hydrogen is still in a very uh, state like um, the the beginning. It's it's a primary stage. Oman is planning a lot of projects. It is possible, but I wouldn't expect anything in in 2023. And finally, in terms of OPEC, you have been to Vienna, haven't you? Since since COVID, there yes, was one once. Vienna meeting. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Although the last one they canned it and decided to do it on Zoom instead, didn't they? Yes, they did. What do you expect? When's the next meeting in Vienna? When are you next boarding a flight to Vienna? And what do you think will happen? I think it will be in June, hopefully, if uh, if it's going to be an in-person meeting. We're, they're planning so far, it seems like an in-person meeting. And for OPEC this year, I think they just want to keep a very calm market. They're dealing a lot of with a lot of uncertainties, a lot of conflicting scenarios. They want to keep the price, let's say, between the um, 70 to 80 range. They don't want the price to shoot up too high. They never talk about prices, of course, but this is something that uh, they will uh, be keen to do, balancing the market, continuing to having the, the price in, in that range to to uh, to fit their budgets. And, and and from the UAE's perspective, 15 seconds, Sahel Al-Mazrui, his priorities for 2023? Well, we have to ask him, but I think one of the main priorities, as, as you mentioned, is uh, COP28, delivering the message that you can be an oil producer, but but at the same time, invest in green energy. Amina Baka is the Deputy Bureau Chief and also the Chief OPEC Correspondent of Energy Intelligence Group. Appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Well, we are looking at a story that got everyone talking to us yesterday, and that is that the DIFC restaurant LPM is giving restaurant staff a four-day working week. It certainly captured the imagination. It's a massive change for the hospitality industry. So we have asked into the studio to explain how they're making it work. Nicholas Budinski, who is the Global Operations Director at LPM. Nicholas, thanks for joining us. Yes, good morning. Happy New Year to everybody. And a happy New Year to you. Tell me, why has LPM decided to do this? I mean, as a company, we've uh, always been looking uh, uh, to our staff as a priority. We believe in the philosophy of happy staff, happy guests, and happy guests, happy business. Uh, so we just uh, looked into what can we do to continue to innovate. And we thought, why not? It's not the traditional attitude of the hospitality industry, though, when it comes to staff and hours. Yeah, but I think the COVID made us uh, rethink how to do things, uh, look forward. And we as a brand uh, always looked into uh, challenging the status quo. And we had this opportunity and we studied it carefully. Um, We tried it out in Abu Dhabi uh, over the summer for a couple of months. Uh, We studied the numbers. uh, We got feedback from the staff. And uh, all was very positive. So we thought, uh, let's roll it out to Dubai uh, after the reopening period, uh, uh, after the renovation we had uh, for four months over the summer. And we wanted to start the year with great news for all our team members uh, in the UAE. So let's talk practically. How are you doing it? How do you make it work shift-wise, hours-wise, coverage-wise? Yeah, so... Basically, the way it works uh, for most of the restaurants, uh, they do work with shifts. So we have a total number of shifts per week per employee, uh, which is seven. Um, Some of the restaurants work with more, but we've always had this approach of working with seven. So instead of having seven over five days, we have seven over 
four days. Uh, we are lucky enough to have a very healthy business, both in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, uh, to be able to support that initiative. Are people working less hours? Uh, n- no, the hours are the same. Um, they might get a benefit of few hours um, overall on the week, uh, but it's not going to be a major impact. Um, but we still follow uh, what the labor law allows us to do, which is 48 hours a, a week per employee. How many hours are they doing in this? What kind of shifts do you have? So uh, typically speaking, uh, in, in the hospitality business, we're talking about single or double shifts. So single shift would be either a lunch or a dinner uh, service, and double shift would be a lunch and a dinner service. So double shift would be probably starting around, I, I'm going to talk about uh, the kitchen mm-hmm. uh, team. So the team would start at 8 o'clock, would work until 4 o'clock, the end of lunch service, would have a, a break uh, and come back uh, for the dinner service and finish around midnight. Um, so that would be uh, typically what a double shift would look like. Single shift would be uh, coming around the same time and finishing maybe an hour later for, for lunch, so five o'clock, to be able to cover the break of the other employees. And there's no change to anybody's wages? No. Is it a longer day, though, for them? The day, I mean, they always had double shifts. So mm-hmm. the, long, the, the length of the shifts uh, have only changed for the single shifts compared to what it used to be. And instead of working two doubles and three singles, uh, uh, during a week, they're now working three doubles uh, and uh, one single. So what has staff reaction been? That trial that you did in, in, in Abu Dhabi? Yeah, the, the staff have been very happy. Um, I mean, f- strangely enough, um, the uh, media and consumer uh, reaction over the last uh, two days have been... Uh, a lot more positive than uh, what the staff uh, have been initially. Um, and what do you it, mean? This goes back to uh, the studies that have been uh, looked into by, by, by many people. Uh, the new generations of workers, uh, new generations of employees, uh, the Generation Z, uh, are looking into work in a very different manner than uh, what it used to be. It's, it's more about what do I require to be able to enjoy my leisure time better? So work is not so much more <clears throat> a necessity, it's more a tool to enjoy their uh, leisure time. Yeah. Do you have to do this in order to attract younger staff? I mean, it's been complicated over the last few years for the industry in general uh, to be able to attract talent as one and to be able to retain talent. Um, we hope that it's going to be easier. It's going to give uh, better benefits, a better work environment to uh, our employees. Mm-hmm. Um, Studies tell us that it does provide a better environment and that employees are better. So we just feel that with the studies we've been reading, plus the trial we've been doing in Abu Dhabi, uh, it only tells us that uh, it's going to be for the better. What challenges have you had in getting millennial or Gen Z staff? What have you seen yourself? I, I think is if, if I compare to, to myself a uh, few years ago uh, or a few decades ago, uh, I think at the time we we started our career was always about what do we want to achieve in 10 years, in 15 years time from now, uh, and putting the efforts um, to be able to achieve that uh, due to internet, due to, I think, uh, the COVID environment, uh, 
the younger generation wants everything now. Um, so, I mean, I can order food for now. Uh, you know, I can order anything on Amazon for now. And it's the same with job. I want that job now. And if I don't get it, then I will go and find it somewhere else. So now is about what can we provide them to be able to uh, feel happier in mm -hmm. our work environment. Were you losing staff, though? I mean, have you had actual problems finding or keeping the people you want? Hospitality has always been a very high uh, turnover uh, industry. I mean, as, as a company, I think we've always done a, a great job in, in retaining our people and looking after them. Uh, I mean, during COVID, uh, I think we, we've been one of these companies to, to, to retain all our employees on wages, uh, which was not the case of everyone. Uh, and the same during the closure of the summer, we kept everybody on board and, and, and paid fully. Uh, so it, it, it's always been our main priority. Um, and I think just the industry in general has been difficult. And for us to take that step forward, first priority is, is for us as LPM, but also is to send a message to the industry and say, if we can do it, why not others? Uh, and we hope that it's going to open the door for business owners and other leaders of the industry to rethink their business model. Will you do this across all of your restaurants? I mean, you're here, obviously, in the UAE, but you're also in Hong Kong, yeah. in the US, uh, in London. Will you be introducing the four-day working week there? Well, I mean, in, in certain markets, Four-day working weeks has been already existing for a long time. Let's take the U.S. as an example. Uh, people have three, four jobs, four times, sometimes. Um, so it, it's already been existing. So the work environment is very different in the U.S. In the U.K., people are paid uh, by the hour uh, also. So they have the possibility to work part-time. Uh, and to decide how many days they want to work. So if it's compatible with our business model, we, we, we find a, uh, a good match. Uh, Hong Kong is not something that we've uh, introduced yet, simply because we, I mean, Hong Kong has just uh, removed the COVID restrictions a couple of weeks ago. Our business has been suffering a lot. Uh, and at this point of time, it's not something we can uh, do. Nicholas Budinski is the Global Operations Director at LPM, introducing a four-day work week here in Dubai and a new move for the hospitality industry. Thank you for your time. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.